Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast, produced by me, Fraser McGrewer, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision-making. I'm here with Nick Hare and Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights, and this week we're discussing, is anything impossible with virtual reality? Peter, is anything impossible with virtual reality? Well, I, I, I was reading a, a, a blog post or a news article about virtual reality and all the massive promises that it potentially brings. Uh, and you get lots of headlines like VR will will make worlds where anything is possible and VR is going to change everything. And I started idly thinking, well, is that true and i thought it'd be fun to sort of discuss now what are what are the limits of virtual reality um if there are there any and what if there are what are they because it it occurs to me that virtual reality is just is just another way of overlaying on what you what you would normally see with a box you put in your face and maybe some sensors you put on your body uh and some earphones you stick in your ears it just overlays stuff other stuff that you would normally perceive um, and there are inherent limits in our capacity to perceive things. So what are those limits? And so so assuming there is a limit, it's not all possible. What is possible and what you know, where are the limits? Nick? Well, this is, I think, a, this is a brilliant question and surprisingly hard to know how to go about answering because, because you know, of course, the, our interaction with the world is so fundamental we don't notice it. And the, what we understand about the way we uh, process information is really based on us, how we are now and how we normally process information. You know, so it's very hard to say how our brains and our perceptions might adapt to, um, you know, perhaps really re-rigging the kind of sensory information we get. But, but I, I will, I'm going I'm to immediately bring bats into this. So bats. here's my question. Of course. Yeah. Is could we, there's a very famous philosophy essay by thomas nagel called what is it like to be a bat where he discusses the fact that we cannot ever really know what it's like to be a bat because we simply don't there's a whole set of experiences that bats have that we don't have and and so i think that's a good place to start a good test case now could vr i'm gonna and i'm gonna extend it and say well let's just start let's start with conceiving of vr as essentially giving us sensory information through the sensory organs we have. We can talk maybe in a bit about what, how we might be able to, you know, use new sensory organs, create new sensory organs, but just stick with, let's just say we've got VR, we've got kind of, you know, 3D immersive visual and let's say auditory and, you know, possibly tactile kind of sensations. So can it, can it show us what it's like to be a bat? Now, I think in sense one, it, can it show us what it's like to have sonar? No, we are not. All it will do is translate, in some sense, the experience of sonar into, into a visual image. We have. Or, yeah. and, and then we'll just know what it's like to be a human seeing what, you know, what a bat's sonar would look like if it was turned into a visual image, which isn't at all the same as knowing what it's like to actually have sonar. But if you think about what it is that we actually experience, we don't experience visual images you're not sitting there watching a visual image like you might watch a tv you're sitting there 
being in the world, a world that your brain has constructed from the information it's got. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. So, so the thing is that maybe... Careful, Fraser. May- it's going to get deep. Yeah. May- maybe, uh, maybe virtual reality could uh, give us an insight into what it's like to be a bat in the sense that it can show us the world that the bat perceives. It can show us the bits of the world that the bat sees. And it might be that, it, you know, what, we, what you would end up doing if you're wearing that virtual reality, seeing a bat's, uh, you know, sonar view of the world, that you would see a great big, you know, it would be dominated by little insects that were very close to your face. And, um, you know, only tangentially show you few, a few bits of where the walls were. Very unlike our own view of the world, which is really hugely about environment and quite a lot about humans and so on. And, I, and so I think, um, you know, taking that bat case, I, I feel like the answer is, uh, well, VR is never going, never going to tell us what it's like to have bat sonar. But, but it can definitely give us an insight into um, the world that a bat uh, perceives and that's uh, that's a step forward at least it's definitely new i mean we you know we we can't do that without without, without that sort of technology so we get kind of bat light or sonar bat light. light yeah yeah you get you get a Sorry. sort of you get an Diet interpretation <laughs> you get a sort of interpret bat where you get an idea of what it's kind of yeah. like to be a bat but you don't get the inherent sense as if you'd been born with that that set of sensory capabilities opposed to your own set of sensory capabilities you're kind of mapping one onto the other in in some sort of way there, there are um, peter i'm sure you know of other examples of this but i know i know that there is a, a wearable you can get a wearable it's like a belt which has m- motorized magnety things on it where they vibrate the, the one that's north vibrates so the magnet that's pointing the thing round your waist, which is pointing in the north, vibrates so that your body sort of knows where north is. And as, as I understand it, people who wear this all day um, eventually get an intuitive sense that that's north. This is brilliant. And their Never sense of direction of and their sense of direction improves dramatically. Right. So they, they have now on one hand, you might say, well, they're only experiencing touch. But I think it might be more accurate to say, no, they have a new sense, a technology-enabled sense. Because it, they, as far as I understand from, well, my interpretation of what people have said who've, who've done this, is that it isn't that they're uh, feeling a kind of vibration around that side of their body and thinking, well, that way's north. What they're thinking is, oh, well, that way's north. Yeah, you're, it's coming you're, straight through you're all sort of, of your sort of your ha- yeah. you're hacking a bit of the sensory uh, sensory organ, like the tactile s- skin sensors. And your the brain is finding a utility in that being consistent enough to be useful, and it just reprograms itself to go. This is a new thing I can use to tell me something useful about the world. Because what I mean, what I was going to say, wouldn't it be? Is there a way? You know, let's say we wanted the real bat, you know, full fat bat, right? Um, that's what we wanted, um, as opposed to bat light. Is is we would need to evolve, okay? Um, and I don't know if there's a way using not necessarily VR, but um, I don't know some sort of computer jiggery 
um, right, right. To, so, to, I mean, I think much as we is... do, much as, as one, I think one of the reasons why we experiment on fruit flies, for example, is because they, 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 they pass through generations really quickly, right? Because they've got such short lives. Is there a, is there a, 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 a um, this is going a, a kind of whole we, we, breeding, we a breeding program? On, uh, fruit flies, but people do. Yeah, <laughs> a breeding program wasn't what I had in mind. I was, but I was, but I think you know there is the prospect of well, okay. Here, the question is. Are our brains plastic enough that this is, and I think this is, I mean, I, I don't know any way we could answer this particularly, but are they plastic enough that have we, you know, have we evolved into a design for a brain that's, that's so general that if we happened, if we took that exact brain and we plopped it into a body which had totally different limbs no, what didn't have eyes, didn't have ears, didn't have any of those things. Um, would it still be able to create a coherent model of the world? That's the question. Now, I, I honestly think the jury's out. I don't yeah. think. Like, the, the, you, well, although we tend to think of our brain, our brain as very specialised towards the human experience. Perhaps the way that humans have specialised, it might be the case that the specialisation is generalisation, and that what we have really done is evolve. A, a brain that actually if we could add new sensory organs we would just get on fine with that and we'd get on with it and we'd, we'd, we'd understand it and we would use that to simply enhance our picture of the world and there, there, there is sort of evidence for that if, if, you, if people who are um, amputees or people who are blinded late in life or people or who death, have a stroke and they, have their, stroke. their brain learns to, yeah, to and use the, the brain and the sensory organs readapt and to allow them to function at a similar level that they were before, uh, so it's extremely reprogrammable even within the life of one 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 specimen. Yeah. So, and that reminds me of another experiment where fitting people with special glasses with mirrors that make the world look upside down, and after you know in a fairly short space of time, um, they adjust to it and it, yeah. and it sort of feels normal. And then you take them off and it feels weird yeah. for a while. Like but then with, they like with sunnies. If you're wearing wearing the old aviator sunnies like like all of us do when we're out in Ibiza, raving it up, then you know when you take them off, the world looks looks the colours change, right? And yeah, but it, yeah. you quit pretty quickly you adapt. Um, I, I think so. Look, well, we, hold on, we before, have, no, before you continue, well, hang on. No, you know, no, as long as you're not going to take it in a boring. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to take it in an interesting direction. Well, I'm going to say on. so. So far, we're actually erring on the side of, um, you know, this going back to the original question: do, it, does VR is anything impossible? Is nothing impossible with? <laughs> I'm glad you said that because that's where I was going, right? So, Go on. Uh, well, well, let me just put. But set... we're on the side of it's all possible. No, uh. let me set because what we've talked about is sensory information. Now, but what we haven't touched on really so much is the characteristics of the world, and and this is this is where it gets more fundamental even than that. So, so that now we. So, what is our world like in fundamental terms? Like the things that we experience, things that we're capable of experiencing, are, are basically require things like a world where there's physical objects and sound and light, um, and three dimensions. Particularly, that's one that we don't tend to even question. But three dimensions, three is a totally random number. It's perfectly possible to have a consistent four-dimensional, ten-dimensional, or hundred-dimensional world. Those things are completely mathematically possible. We just happen to have three. Okay, there's nothing special about three. Um, and, uh, you know, in a direction of time. Um, 
So yeah. there are there are things that seem to be. I mean, now it gets harder to imagine what it might be like to um, to experience what it would be like if there was no time, or if there were no objects, or if there were five dimension. But it, take the example of time. There's a game called Braid, which is a it's a two dimensional like platformer. But it's it, it it buggers around with the way that time works in a really clever way, you know. So that in some levels, as you move to, from left to right, time goes forward, and as you move the other way, time goes backwards. And you can replay time in some of the levels, and it does all these things with time. And at the end, you you actually start to think about time a different way. And and uh, there's also a book uh, which you guys might have read, the uh, Times Arrow by Martin Amis. Mm. Uh, everyone should read it. It's only about Wonderful 150 book. pages long. One something. of my favorites. Amazing. Of yeah. And and when I read it, I had an I, I I found that after you know once I got really into it, I was listening to a story on the radio that someone was telling, just a, like a phone-in show, and someone was describing something that had happened to them, and I was mentally translating it into the other way round. You know that the cause was happening after the effect, um, and and then I switched back very quickly. But the point is that if that kind of experience can fiddle with those very fundamental elements of our experience, because if we think that's the way the world the world is, well, maybe we can maybe VR does offer the prospect of fiddling with those really fundamental elements. Yeah, maybe we could imagine but experiencing I, I, VR. But I suspect just to bring it back to sort of. A, uh, a, a kind of purist interpretation of the question it's not not everything is possible to comprehend because there'll be there are limitations so you still need even in the game where time messes around or the ability thinking about movies where they use time travel quite creatively uh it's there is a certain limit at which point it becomes just too much you know, too difficult too too less fun and you're going to take the VR headset off. You know, um, like Alice in Wonderland. Imagine that on acid, just where every there's just no, there's just no sense or reason to anything, and it's just a sense, just a a random bunch of flashing lights and colours and shapes and senses from all over, from all different directions. That's not going to be any fun, is it? It may have some inherent. Uh, logic and reason behind it for doing that but there's a limit to your capacity to comprehend all of this that it's just going to cause you to give up and i think the 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 three the dimensional limit is particularly um uh hard i don't think i don't think it's possible because of the fact that we have all of our senses and particular well our visual sensory information is two-dimensional and from that two-dimensional information, we construct a three. What we feel like is a three-dimensional view of the world, but re- all it really is is flat pictures, right? It's flat pictures that we construct. The idea of three dimensions, because we appear to live in a three-dimensional world, but it won't be possible, I don't think, to get to a to have an intuitive understanding of what it'd be like to have three-dimensional eyes perceiving a four-dimensional world. And there might well, be this. We, we do have a bit of 3D perception because we've got two eyes. Well, no, 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 most no, people no, have two I know, eyes. but no, no part of that is. So a three dimensional eye would, only accept, works in the would, accept, would accept light coming in from four dimensional objects hmm. in, um, in three directions, whereas we accept light coming in from the, yeah. the 2D surfaces of three dimensional objects coming in in uh, essentially two di- directions. And, yeah, but uh, it, but in near field you've got two D, you've got three D perception. I, well, no, no, it's, it's, it's faux three D perception. What it is, is pretend, just like three D 
cinema with the two with yeah. the two yeah so what it is what it, it doesn't, it doesn't show, allow it doesn't, us it doesn't okay, show you what's behind the object you're looking at right so a genuine perception of 3d if i wanted to perceive a 3d object like fraser i would see all of his insides at once mm. and that wouldn't be an advantage uh, <laughs> in anyone's language but no, the point is that that quite you know we we don't have we just simply do not have the apparatus to process three-dimensional hmm. data about a four-dimensional world let alone 99-dimensional data about a hundredth yeah. dimensional but world. just a point of correction i'm beautiful inside as well as outside yeah anyway, I, mainly mainly i hope well i see you're more beautiful inside <laughs> than you are outside so the, the, the readers can read in a lot about you but 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 given the the general uh the general flexibility of the human brain is there a way that like the belt that you wear to tell you which way it is north is there a way of hijacking the senses to give you that capacity to perceive four dimensions that we've just not tried yet? now uh, indeed and i and but you know my, my only thought is that the processing capability of a of a four-dimensional brain would be necessarily just so vastly bigger that you know we would imagine imagine taking a slice a two-dimensional slice of a human brain and living in a two-dimensional world and asking well what how much can we get this two-dimensional brain to process it's tiny uh compared to the amount it's not just you know some fraction it's a it's almost it cuts off almost everything that we can do because of the way that our neurons can ride around each other and 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 go off to lots of different directions at once and and in a two-dimensional brain you can't cross over stuff you can't go from you know you can't go through other connections whereas with three dimensions you can and um so you know a, a genuinely four-dimensional brain would be uh would give us if you know any being with a four-dimensional brain would have an inordinately vastly greater yeah. ability how, to experience how, things and we simply if, can't do that for the same if, reason we can't if we, uh, we can't experience what it's like to be more intelligent than we if, are if we if we relax the constraint that we're using only the processing power available to the brain and we out we outsource some of that processing capability so there's so um there's a some sort of computer there that's Look, analyzing what you are, what your current field of view is in this for uh, this higher dimensional space, and only processing and giving you access to that stuff. So, whichever way you pan in forward dimensions, still is consistent. Mm. Potentially, you could you could bootstrap that four dimensional perception, you would, uh, and, and possibly, yeah. I mean, again, uh, the, this is a surprisingly hard question to answer because you would think. The more fundamental something is, the easier it w would be to think about. But actually, we're really uh, delving into the the very sort of most fundamental elements of, of human experience here. And but luckily, we've we've nailed that now. We've well, we have. Yeah, yeah, finished. Done. Lots of unknown unknowns. Um, okay, uh, all of this is we're talking about technology being potentially mind blowing, and you know, VR, wonderful things it can do, right, um, or will do. Um, and there, what's exciting about this? There will be within our lifespans, um, there will be stuff um, happening with VR and, and other technology which will just blow our minds. It's wonderful, right? Hopefully not literally yeah, blow our minds. Hopefully not. However, I'd like you to cast your mind back and think about a point. See, can you tell me a point in the past when your mind has been blown by something cool that's technological? Um, I mean, and just to start you off, I remember. Uh, being about I don't know twenty years old perhaps, um, and there was 
who's the Sega Hedgehog bloke? Sonic Hedgehog, right? And I think it was the second iteration of that where he goes on this kind of 3D journey through in along a tube that goes around yeah, yeah, there. Yeah, he's collecting rings with his with his mate, uh, that, that, that squirrel or something. Yeah, well, he always did that in profile. But then I don't know what the sort of the name. No, of I think that. these are different levels on the same Sega. This is Sega Mega Drive. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so you've got the two D thing where they're running along tails. I think yeah. The, the guy was called. And uh, you're right. It was the same. Ver- yeah. And then he goes into the third dimension. Right. Well, I remember seeing that when I was about twenty. I must admit, I was probably slightly under the twenty. Yeah. Well, this is that was you, probably what, about are you like fifty five or something. I'm forty five. So yeah, this, well, this would have been about ninety two, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, why is this surprising? But, um, but I remember that I was just, it just freaked me out. I'd never seen yeah. anything like that. And I was just, I was just so um, breathtaking. It was amazing. Well, I, okay. Now, so example for you, a bit of technology well, no, blowing your because, mind. Because actually when you think about um, what, what it is that uh, interaction with computers has offered in, t- in terms of expanding our sensory capabilities and, and our experience of doing stuff, you know that that if you you know our entire world uh, up until the existence of computers has involved you physically touching things, mm. you know, um, you know to make things happen. Now we have this just, and I'm not even talking about VR. I'm talking about just having a computer screen with simulated objects on it. And and uh, for me, it would be there's well the two things. I mean, firstly, games like SimCity, where you're you know you're not actually. In a, a guy I mean that was one of the first games where you're not a guy mm. doing something in most games you were a thing you were a spaceship you know you were a character you were going around it whereas in SimCity you are a an abstract force you know saying well I want a thing there and I want a mm. thing there and you can b- and build a road here but you're not a guy going around doing that that's just a you're a force from above plonking these things down and um, that is not like any experience that anyone has and yet we get it right but mm. for me the the moment where i sort of suddenly realized how great computer games would be is i didn't hadn't played on a computer between about uh 19 about sort of 1991 and 1995 it was a and that was a long time in those days i was you know i'd stopped uh i i you know i didn't my old computer had just stopped being supported and I hadn't played on the computer for, for what felt like decades, but which, looking back, is now just four years. And between my Atari 800XL from the late 80s and 1995, offering this Pentium 90, on which I could play Red Alert, uh, Command & Conquer Red Alert. My, the, and, and this was the first time I'd played on a computer in about four years. Uh, the the first mission where you have basically you have three planes and you have to you have to send them out and gun down a load of uh, completely innocent villagers and i thought this is just the best i can't believe where's this been all my life they they i'm just able to order these people around it's like toy soldiers but i can order them around and make them kill people i just okay. thought it's brilliant okay okay yeah peter uh so i don't know i i've i've kept up with technology unlike razor and nick here so i've not had these kind of revelation epiphanies about wow that's amazing so i kind of grown up with it you know it's been very incremental for me Mm. i've not sort of seen these big changes because i've just been sort of 
the changes have been incremental in my perception. Fair enough. Uh, I mean, something I, I mean, I noticed recently is in my daily work, I use, um, uh, I mean, a Skype, it's not Skype, but a Skype like platform every day, all the time, five, six, seven times a day. Uh, and we could be, I mean, I say Skype, but it could be Google um, Hangouts, could be whatever. Um, and actually, you know, half a decade ago, a decade ago, that was still quite, um, okay, it wasn't impossible, but it was, it was still relatively unusual. Yeah, I suppose if I look, I mean, if I sort of take that retrospective view, then some of the things we do now just routinely day to day, like being able to talk to anybody anywhere in the world for nothing any time of day is totally incredible. Um, uh, and yeah, so they, uh, but, but maybe another podcast, why do some really annoying things like email still persist so much? Um, but yeah, but the, yeah. So retrospectively, yeah, there's some pretty amazing things that we do and yeah. take for granted now. You, you, if you'd have shown us talking as we do on Google Hangouts amongst each other, if you'd have shown that to our seven-year-old, when selves, we're carefully scripting this podcast, exactly. Uh, if you'd have shown that to our seven-year-old selves, we'd have been go great. The future's coming. Here it comes. Let's get well, the future. This it. is what I'm saying to my kids all the time. The you're living in the future. You know, we are in the future. There's nothing more that we need, really. I mean, we've got, what, space travel? We've got SpaceX. Do you, what, what do you want? Free energy? That's coming. It, they've got all these the solar panels everywhere now. It's just nothing's missing, really. There's, there's almost nothing from sci-fi we haven't already got. It's incredible. Well, so on that sort of note... Um You've heard it from Aleph Insights. The future is now. The future is here. Everyone can stop innovating right now. Yeah, that's it. We're done. Otherwise, we'll go too far. Yeah, (laughs) we'll tip it over the edge. Okay, uh, we'll stop there. So thank you, as always, uh, for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. I've been here with Peter Coghill and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Mm